with the wide set of skills and wide set of knowledge that cooks and chefs are equipped with, you can really go in all sorts of directions. So just pick a direction you want to go in, focus on learning the skills that are necessary for that, hone what you love and what you care about, and then take that wherever you want to go with it. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Voyatras. Our chef and fugitive for today is Nicholas Roniai. Nick and I met each other in Copenhagen. We were both selected as receivers of a scholarship by Mad Academy where we studied a little about environment and sustainability for a week and we were traveling to Copenhagen and during this whole course of course of time uh, I got the opportunity to to know Nicholas better. Uh, he and I actually were in the same group of uh, these activities that he was assigned during that so it was even easier to to connect with him and uh, his career is something which has been very interesting to me because he you will hear through the through the conversations now that he's worked for some really interesting fields of uh, of gastronomy and today he does actually something super interesting which I would like him to tell us more about So yeah without further ado Nick if you could like let us know what is it that you do today where do you come from and a little a little short introduction about you please Well at the moment I'm a fermentation supervisor is my title at Meaty a um, company that makes an alternative protein out of mycelium uh I oversee the lab and the uh fermentation operations there but previous to that I was a chef at Meta the parent company to Facebook over in Seattle I got to do some pretty fun stuff there with uh starting a fermentation program to make use of food waste that was sort of inspired by our time at the Mad Academy and uh trying to pressure them into uh taking some action on <laughs> on their food footprint because uh, honestly food waste at that place was pretty intense there was a lot of waste being produced so yeah former chef I got into the industry into the culinary world pretty late around the age of 23 uh most people start a little bit earlier i jumped around find trying to find what i wanted to do and uh when i started working in a kitchen just to get by it really jumped out at me and although i have pivoted a little bit still very passionate about the food world and determined to stay in it in some capacity <laughs> right but then at 23 first of all like how was it was it something which you always did or is it like a classic uh, story where your grandmother taught you cookies and you thought this is the future of my career or like why did you think you should start in a kitchen and what process did you take for it i'd actually avoided it for the longest time because my dad is a chef so i grew up around it so i actually i actually entered it with a pretty solid understanding of what i was getting into and again i did, i never had a plan on it i was studying you know computer science before radio journalism all sorts of different stuff before trying to find some other path but i was always cooking at home always enjoyed it and then i got a job at a kitchen just to get by and something clicked and i fell in love with it uh really it was the uh the pantry of the kitchen i was working in which had a bit of a iranian theme to it so i had a lot of uh spices and ingredients that I'd never seen before and that got me really excited to work with those things and from there I just kept pursuing it and but yeah my my expectations were pretty pretty well set by my dad I knew what I was getting into how was your perspective of seeing people around you of your age who are actually entering 
at that point i can comfort, comfortably say that people entering the kitchen at that point might be coming from maybe seeing the fame around it or seeing a lot of glamour around it and you from knowing did you see yourself like having an edge over them or was it actually like yeah, i would have loved to be that innocent entering the kitchen a little bit of both i think i definitely i was lucky to not have my dreams shattered or anything i definitely saw a lot of people come in uh just having watched cooking shows or having followed a specific chef's career and thinking it would be easy to slide into the same thing or even having seen the tougher side of things and thinking they were prepared but you know not really knowing it fully it definitely helped to know what i was getting into especially from the side of i kind of knew that i wanted i was going to want to pivot at some point from the beginning so i knew that seeing my dad mm-hmm. take every different path he worked in fine dining and in institutional cooking pretty much every corner of the industry you could imagine and uh seeing him trying to find a place where he felt comfortable and trying to find a place where he could have that work life balance and everything and really struggle with that i knew that i was going to want to still be in food but make a pivot at some point so really where i'm at now is sort of the result of a path that i sort of set from the beginning and uh, knowing that you actually had this idea from the beginning that you wanted to leave the formal restaurant kitchen service at some point did you ever think of like educating yourself on different fronts around what you're working with or was it just like you thought it would come naturally when you require that that knowledge i think i allowed some amount of time for it to come naturally um i just kind of jumped from place to place for a while, tried out different restaurants, tried out different uh sort of corners of the industry for a little bit. And eventually before I expected, um I got into fermentation and I sort of experimented with that for many years and then it sort of became more and more clear over time that that was going to be the the path I go down and I really didn't expect to take this job. I didn't expect this opportunity to leave uh kitchens uh as quickly and I don't know I'm kind of torn on I would have liked to you know explore the Michelin side of things you know I never made it to that end of the industry I worked in fine dining but never quite to to that level and I'm still curious about that but at the same time it's balancing the need for creative fulfillment with um having a life outside of work having a a path as I get a little bit older and want to settle down like looking back right now i mean you of course are, are a very different person because you had like the context of things of how life is uh seeing your father constantly but uh i think it also changes a lot with the age he must have started cooking and i think that was at that point maybe the options were smaller the 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 stream of things you could do as professionally educating as a chef were limited but still seeing that side of things and having of course an expectation of what it would be like for you a day to day life while you were still working in restaurants was it better was it worse what were the feelings you think you were missing out on what improvements you might have seen because you have now left that part of life so how do you think you would have sustained yourself in that phase longer if you actually wanted to as a, it, the restaurant life itself was pretty rough you know 16 hour work days often 6 days a week you know it's a lot of work um at least at the places i was working at and um it didn't feel sustainable at the time looking at the chefs i was working under as well they were battered individuals you know they had been working very hard mm-hmm. their entire lives and um 
I didn't necessarily identify with that side of things, but I did think a more long-term uh, sustainable path would be to try and start something of my own. But frankly, the, uh, the climate at the time where I might have considered that wasn't super inviting to it. And still now, I think uh, after the pandemic and with other factors, the restaurant industry is pretty up in the air and there's a lot that needs to settle uh, before we really know what it's going to look like down the line. I think a lot's changing and I just haven't felt comfortable going down the path of starting something uh, in the past few years. Yeah, I mean, I, I have this this classic dilemma as well because, I mean, back when I was in the restaurants, I used to think that, I think you also mature with whatever you, you face around yourself. But then many a times we as people who are actually working for somebody and do not have to sign those paychecks or maintain the balance sheet at the end of the month are actually looking at things very practically that, okay, if my contract says nine hours, why should I work 10 hours? And uh, I mean, if a restaurant cannot sustain itself without having people working extra hours for them, it should actually shut. That is the blatant truth we keep repeating to ourselves that, okay, if, I mean, it's very easy. Close the restaurant if, if you can't really work the mats around it. But if you put yourself like, that's the challenge for me that how would I think, how would I do things better? How would I do things different and still be a remarkable restaurant, still be getting clientele every day and not sacrifice? Uh, of course, it's an excuse because I think to myself, would I, would I, would the same restaurant I work for sell something which is not up to the mark, would actually put something which is spoiled or even a finely less perfect than it should be that I mean restaurants do not compromise on those fronts we are taught as chefs to not compromise on serving the client but then the compromise always comes down to the kitchen side of things what do you think is is missing is it just like people do, are not ready is it just the legal system around it that doesn't permit them to make those changes because i think everybody's aware because there is a big factor of what you said that people say that we faced long hours, so why shouldn't my subordinates now? That is a classic thing that keeps running in kitchens even today. I had I was unpa I was an unpaid stagiaire. I peeled potatoes all day, so why should it be bad? Because today I'm in a good place. How do you fight uh, mentally, even if you're not supposed to face those people? How do you give yourself a reason that there is a better way out, or is it just something we don't know yet? I'm not really sure. Uh, when it comes to the that whole traditional idea of, you know, I did it, so now everybody else after me must, that definitely seems to be on its way out at the moment. Things definitely seem to be changing away from that. But honestly, when it comes to the very top end of things, it feels like it's difficult to achieve that without some level of, you know, free labor basically <laughs> you know you need a lot it, the prices would be it's already not super accessible to a lot of people a lot of clients a lot of customers but it would be even less so if you charge the true cost of producing you know the food that's served at the best restaurants in the world um, when it comes to sort of the middle range of things the sort of thing that i might consider starting myself i think that I've thought about it before in terms of prices kind of need to go up. It needs to be treated as a special event, dining out. Here in the States especially, I think, uh, dining out has become pretty much a daily thing. There's a lot of people who go out to eat at least once a day, maybe three times a day, every single meal. And uh, there's, a, there's a space for that, and that can be a separate thing. But when it comes to having high expectations and expecting 
good food served in a good atmosphere by good service staff. Um, I think that needs to be valued a little bit more at the at the mid range, and treat more as a special occasion sort of thing, so that people can afford to to give you the best ingredients, the best staff, and the best preparations without stretching themselves so thin that they have to push their people to the to the bitter edge. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't in the list of uh, things I had uh, thought of asking, but. Now that you've touched the subject of the stage, uh, I mean, it's it's a pretty hot topic uh, after many events which have been happening in the whole uh, industry. But uh, I am of the opinion personally that it should not be uh, usual if, I mean, every person in a restaurant should be paid. The pay level can be different, but it cannot go as just uh, free labor. But then I also see the other side of people who have, I mean, today I think there is no, re- I mean, I do not know of any, chef or any kitchen professional who enters the industry without education i think it's become so normal now to go to a culinary grad school that those days of starting as a dishwasher and ending up in the kitchen might still be some some cases but it's not it's not the usual so people are actually paying a premium first of all to get that education uh considering people who are because there i've met many people who have entered the mode of being a dishwasher then uh, was told that okay why don't you spend the weekend in the kitchen and you're not paid for that of course because you are learning it's like paying your school how do you fight that logic of that the stagiaire coming to my restaurant is uh, is not an extra hand but but is actually not going to contribute uh, you and i know very well that many restaurants would not be able to exist if the 40 30 stagiaires in the team does, don't exist but how do you fight this logic without just using that excuse that uh people who say that they are here to learn and they will make mistakes so the restaurant also is paying the price of having their presence is that a credible logic or is just something used to get away with the idea of having free labor that's a really tough thing as well because uh you can argue that it is a form of education you know definitely my dad came up in that era where pretty much everybody started at the bottom and worked their way up and i definitely know a lot of people who were successful in that way but and you know they're volunteering and especially you know here in the states again culinary education is not cheap it could cost close to $100,000 to get a a degree from a reputable school so to try and skirt that and instead of paying for a formal education go up through the traditional route but at the same time it's it's hard not to see that as expletive as well you know it's hard not to see that as taking advantage uh, i really don't have an answer on that you know it's mm-hmm. really, it's a really tough debate yeah i think not much has changed because it's not just that it like one has switched to the other it's not like the one going to culinary grad school doesn't have to do the free internship it's actually these people who are going to these grad schools many of them were my interns at many of these restaurants so it's like it's not that the one has helped the other it's just like both are existing now so the cost is just doubled up which is what i think is uh, is unfortunate but then like these restaurants that exist in this field how do you see their future with all these announcements going on of uh, i mean you you mentioned the fact that uh, you wanted to you would have liked to f- follow that path of uh, working in michelin starred restaurants having yours one day and collecting those accolades and those uh, green blue and yellow stars how do you after seeing what's happening do you think it's the end of this do you think that okay thank god i did not enter that because it's just wrapping up or is that somebody's actually going to break through the whole 
mathematics of it and actually prove that it is sustainable, not just uh, with getting a green star, but with actually paying your people and all that, what actually signifies sustainability. What, how do you see it? Do you see that that dream of yours is crushed and there's there's nothing coming there or do you see a future? Yeah, well, I definitely, you know, I avoided it for exactly the reasons we're talking about because I would have started considering that at maybe the age 25, 26. And at that point, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I don't want to work for free. I, you know, I have a wife. I don't want to drag her along with me as I, you know, just scrape by and whatnot. But I like what these restaurants are doing. I want it to be able to exist. You know, I want the the art of the absolute pinnacle of the culinary world to still exist. And it's just been the state of affairs for so long that you have to lean on this free labor to uh, make that happen. And frankly, I haven't spent enough time around that environment to try and speculate on how that might be possible without leaning on that. But I really would hope that it's possible. And I do like uh, Noma, for example, with their pivot to uh, sort of a research lab and making their uh, consumer packaged goods, you know, their their sauces that they sell, which are right. a lot more accessible. So you can get those Noma flavors, you know, for it's still not super cheap, maybe 40 bucks to get them imported over here. Uh, but you can get them or some something like Empirical, the distiller, the distillery in Copenhagen that produces some fantastic flavors that are a little bit more accessible in the forms of sauces and drinks and whatnot. So I like that end of things. I don't know how you make the whole dining experience, the whole theater of it, and then how that is sustainable or how it could happen for without having to pay $10,000 a plate. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting what you're saying because I was in the same stream of thoughts because I know restaurants like the ones I've worked for over here in Spain, uh, at Noma as well, uh, most of them used to, like, I think very early on, they realized that the fine dining concept, how much ever you charge is not uh, is not profitable or even making ends meet. And I think at that point, they all shifted to like, when I worked at Mugaritz, I know Mugaritz had nine restaurants, one selling tacos, the other selling uh, just, just bread. And I knew that they had this economy working where the margins were much higher. And same with same goes for Noma selling burgers or be it uh, be it at bar or be it hard bakery. They had this economy of things working out. But putting that in context with what is happening today with Noma shifting into the lab and uh, and um, doing the Noma project stuff, do you think that is going to be a model which could work where they could actually, the prime source of income could be the projects because I know that it's not that labor intensive. It's more scalable. I mean, you're not depending on a variable as big as customers and uh, like real real time customers. So do you think that's going to be something that could work? Like where we are seeing restaurants like Ernst in Berlin, which is doing eight covers. But then if a restaurant like that could potentially have selling products and retailing as a front of it, which makes money and that could pay those interns maybe. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought about, uh, I definitely think that, uh, something like Noma projects could scale up and make a lot of money. I hadn't thought of it in terms of offsetting the costs of running a top end restaurant, I think, but I think that is definitely a path that could, that could be taken advantage of. Cause really, if you have a name like Noma, you can use that to sell your products at a bit of a premium and they're going to be quality products. People are going to be willing to, to pay for them and they'll still be somewhat accessible to a lot of people. So, 
Yeah, I definitely think that's a path of offsetting the cost of running the restaurant through uh, those products because really they could scale them up as, as much as they want to. And I know they have the demand, so it's really just a matter of meeting it. It's been sold out for, for a long time, so that means there is, there is a demand for it. And, and the price tag is just a question of uh, what boundaries they want to push. But then again, now that you say this point, it comes to my mind that, okay, that looks, that sounds practical, but then is it going to be possible for everybody? Because Noma has taken 20 years to reach at that point. Can you as Nick or me as Furkan start a restaurant which starts with that as their label? I don't really know. So it's it's going to be some interesting times coming forward because uh, I think none of us have it figured out. I do not think, like I'm of the opinion, I do not think people are, people are opportunists, yes. They are using the set model of stagiaires and all the things around it to reach success. But I do not think people are necess- like necessarily cruel or want to be bad to others. It's just, yeah, it's, it can't be used as an excuse, but it's just nobody's figured out. Nobody's cracked the, the model that could actually work. But uh, like yeah. they're just trying to make good food. Exactly. They're just trying to do a good job, make amazing food and all that, and trying to find a way to make it work financially. I'm sure if everybody could pay everybody on their staff, they would. But it's just a matter of, like you say, figuring out how to make that work. And you're right. Um, if that were to become the new model of using a side business to offset the cost of, you know, the big restaurant. Um, that would be a bigger barrier of entry. It's already quite a high barrier for entry for people who want to start something. So that would definitely make it even tougher. Now it's, it's going to be super interesting. I mean, I, I know that in, in the States as well, like people are just, I mean, I, every other person I meet from the States, even during our Mad Academy stint, I guess, they're all private chefs. And that just, that's not something I've seen very commonly in Spain. And I'm just wondering that, what's what's with that like why is everybody going there is it just like is the demand so much that everybody is actually find, finding potential clients and potential dinners every every weekend or or how does this work like how what do you see about that side of people who are actually chefs and getting into the private uh, chef gig what do you what do you think about that there are a couple of uh, really good perspectives on that because i've never done it myself i have considered it because i've had a lot of friends who have had success doing it And I am always surprised at what seems to be a never-ending supply of clients. There is also Mm -hmm. a chef uh, that I've sort of noticed in the U.S. recently, Eric Rivera. He uh, started in Seattle, um, and he basically goes around the country organizing private dinners where he gets an Airbnb somewhere, um, sets up his whole thing in there and does a tasting menu out of that Airbnb, and he sells out, I think, most of his dates for it. So I don't know where the demand's coming from. I don't know anybody who's hiring private chefs, but it's definitely there. I think part of it is meal planning. You'll go to some rich person's house and you'll just make them a week's worth of meals and set them aside. But a lot of it's events. A lot of it's just single nights. Some people charge hundreds, if not thousands of dollars just to cook you a meal in your house and it is tempting. It is a tempting path to go down. <laughs> <laughs> what about like, I mean, did you say you went through formal culinary education? I didn't really, didn't really get that. Did you, did you go to a formal culinary school? No, I never did. I definitely grew up around it. So I had a little bit of a background before I got into it. But uh, yeah, I just went the way of got into my first place and then started. I did seasonal work for a while. So I just jumped from place to place and 
Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I found that if I uh, go from restaurant to restaurant, I can rise through the ranks a little quicker. So within my first year and a half or so. Yeah. And it's a very interesting aspect because, I mean, I have been questioning, I'm working for a, for a technological center, but it's based inside a culinary school because I studied in India. And in India at that point, there was not even like culinary schools. That was something which I realized very much later. We just had uh, hospitality schools. Uh, hotel management is a big thing in India because, uh, I mean, the logic of it is that all the good restaurants which need educated chefs because being a cook is not something classically an educated person's job in India. Uh, it, it is what it is. Uh, they, there was just hotel management schools. So I did. I studied hotel management, in fact, where, where cooking was maybe four hours a week. The rest of I, I learned how to make beds for housekeeping or how to check in a guest for front office. So I, I'm mentioning that because now when I work in this place, I'm actually seeing people pay 9,000 euros a year. It's total around 40,000 euros uh, in, in, in tuition fees. So it's very interesting because I, I did not like, didn't you feel that, I mean, didn't you feel that you could have gone to a culinary school? Was it the economics of it? Was it just you thought that it's a waste of the four years or three years that actually, actually practically work? Because I find it very difficult. I, I find it easier for me because I did not have that resource at that point. So it's an easy decision to make. It's not like I sacrificed something which I hadn't access to, but you in the States definitely had access to going that route so do you look back and regret or and like at that point how why did you just not take it and then you know try it out i went back and forth on that a lot early on uh, one thing that kind of deterred me was the first ever um fine dining place i worked at. it was a resort um and a secluded location an island out in the sailor sea um my the sous chef who i was working under just he's rushing through the kitchen he grabs me on my first day and first question he asked me is did you go to culinary school and i said no and he's like fantastic okay. so i think his worry was that i think especially when you look at a lot of the people who came up through those ranks they they worry about you know habits being embedded in you early on and things like that but i did consider it my dad um, actually taught at the paul bocuse institute and he was oh, always wow. trying to get me to go there. He was always trying to get me to do something like what you might have done, like a hospitality management program mixed in with a culinary program. But uh, I think at some point I just realized that I was far enough in already. I was rising through the ranks decently quickly. And again, knowing that I wanted to pivot at some point and didn't want to necessarily make a, a career as a chef, um, you know, super long term, I definitely wanted to reach that height and see what I could do with it. But I knew that that wasn't what I was going to want to do in 15 years, you know? So especially in the state, one thing that I always talk about a little bit when it comes to culinary education in the States, is I say, maybe not here because it's so expensive. It's for the best places. It's insanely expensive. So if I were to do it, I would probably go back to, I'm from Canada, so I'd probably go back to Canada where it's a little bit cheaper. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's quite brave. I, I do not know if I would have had, I mean, the clarity you have is very impressive to to make that choice because, of course, it's it's you can do a doctorate at the age of 60, but you know when you're starting off and, and it's it's impressive. I think, yeah, it's, it's a big, uh, big factor that you had actually worked and seen what was happening so... Of course, you felt like it would actually deter you from from the path you've already taken. But yeah, it's massive. I don't think anybody's 
uh, unfortunately doing that anymore because all the interns I was receiving in Noma and Mugaritz, I can understand the the feels of that sous chef of like, because you do not want to stereotype people, but in the end, it comes. This is a real example. I asked an intern to make a hazelnut praline for a dish we were trying out, like in the test kitchen, at Mugaritz. And uh, the intern just goes, do you have, uh, how do you call it, the wet grinder? Like a like a wet wet mixed grinder. It's, it's called conchadora in Spanish. Oh, you like a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you have the stones, you put the... Like conch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and I was like, why do you need that? Because at that point, I was, and I'm, I'm in Mugaris, which is at that point, seventh best restaurant in the world, didn't have any of that. And I, coming from India, and even working in Paris, and I had no idea what that thing is. I saw it later at Noma in the years, but I felt that somehow the school I studied in didn't even have a thermomix or something as basic, but that prepared me to know that you just you just put in the oven for like eight minutes at 160 and you'll have a toasted hazelnut, which you put in any any mixer would leave its oil and you have a praline at some, at some stage. So I, I really do not know. I, I do not have an answer if it's actually beneficial to go to a culinary school, if it's not... Uh, unfortunately, it's become like a set entry level at any kitchen today. I think you and I were lucky at that point to not be in that league. But it's it's really interesting. I do not know because my follow up question was that, like, okay, before that, how does your how does your father see what you're doing today? Like, what does he think? Did he even think that a person who started in the kitchen would end up doing what you're doing today? We have not yet indulged into what you're doing, but still, just just a basic. Uh, idea of his perspective on things it's definitely yeah, i think he's probably happy that i didn't continue to <laughs> culinary but i think part of what gave me that um that confidence to know i could rise through the ranks without going to school was seeing how he had done it because he actually um he started at the age of 14 you know working at a hotel in budapest and uh you know just he was one of those classic guys who worked his way through the ranks. He had applied to school. He applied to the Paul Bocuse Institute and got rejected several times. He eventually ended up teaching there. So he was a big proponent of that path. He's always, as long as I've been alive, he's always had an apprentice with him, somebody who follows mm -hmm. him every day through everything he's doing and, you know, learns everything. One of them is, one of his previous apprentices is his business partner now. So... He is a big, and when it comes to what I'm doing now, I'm actually quite proud of pretty much applying that to something that it shouldn't be applicable to. Uh, a lot of the people I work with now have degrees in chemistry. One of my peers has uh, was working as a nuclear engineer before he did my job. And I have no formal education in that regard. It's just teaching myself about fermentation and exploring it professionally in restaurants and kitchens that I've worked in and building up leadership roles and things like that. <laughs> I've climbed my way to a place that I'm surprised I find myself in. So, Yeah, yeah I know that, I know that, I know that feeling where you feel like out of place because even myself today, like when I walk into my job and I see all these food technologists and scientists and people are doing PhD into how uh, one of my colleagues has just come back from UC Davis doing a PhD on her paper is based on uh, how does a shape or color differ the sense of sweetness you have of a thing. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's very interesting, but where am I? But I think it's, it's going to be a little, uh, uh, 
like yeah i i think we need a context at this point like if you could just tell us briefly what you're doing i know it's a lot of stuff is uh, extremely fancy and non disclosable but just tell us what is it uh, yeah for a layman think that i do not know anything about i'm just a random chef who just goes to the kitchen every morning so what what do you do what's your day like so it's pretty much um you know we make a protein alternative well we're trying to sell it more as a new class of protein rather out of mycelium um it's pretty nutritionally dense it's not um it's not made of any common allergens as many of those protein alternatives generally are you know like soy wheat things like that um i'm a big fan of it it has a great texture um it tastes pretty good uh right now we have a product that's kind of like a looks like a tenderloin fillet you know it's like a steak product we have a chicken breast kind of product even though we're not trying to emulate um animal proteins it is kind of the direction you have to go in with the way the market is right now but ultimately hopefully become a new class um and i oversee the lab so where we start the process and the fermentation department which for the most part looks like a brewery and i oversee just the growth of the mycelium before we pass it on to the food processing side where they make it into the the products that you can buy in stores or have in restaurants yeah okay so what's what's like something you would do on a daily basis do you have like a a target to reach every day in terms of this this production like who do you answer to who do you report to Well I'm sort of I'm mostly in a management role so my role is largely administrative at the moment but I also work right. between so by operators who are making everything happen in the lab and in fermentation but also with our engineers and scale up teams to dial in our process cuz the facility that we're working out of we're not actually producing out of right now we're just uh trying to get the process to work well cuz one of the things that excites me about it is this is the first time this has ever been done at this scale or in this way most of the equipment we're working with is entirely custom it's entirely uh made just for us and we're just trying to figure it out so i'm working with engineering and with our teams just running the process recording what goes right recording what goes wrong and then working to improve it until eventually we get where we want to be so eventually it will be a production environment but right now it's uh it's more of just a like a prototype environment. Yeah, we have a we have a we have another plant which um is a much smaller scale and we produce very comfortably out of there. It's just a matter of scaling up has been complicated. It's again it's the first time it's ever been done before with this technology, so there's a lot to figure out. Oh wow, that sounds sounds really interesting. Could you just uh I mean I I remember you mentioned uh while we were at Mad Academy you were working at with Meta which sounded very very interesting i've never had for myself i've never worked with uh, institutional catering and i can only imagine what that means in 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 an organization like meta so just if you could just tell us i mean how did you end up at meta for in the first place and like what was your what was your day like how different was it yeah i just ended up there through connections with friends when i was coming off the seasonal work traveling around the us working at different restaurants and uh wanted to settle down a bit and when i got to seattle a friend set me up but uh yeah it's a really weird world where uh 
institutional catering, you know, you're cooking for hundreds, if not thousands of people a day. And, uh, you know, the quality level at different institutions can vary pretty widely. But uh, at Meta, we had a pretty high budget. We were pretty free to do what we wanted. The main thing they wanted was a different menu pretty much every day. With uh, We could do specific region of Mexico one day, region of Italy the next, specific state, maybe a menu themed off of a movie the next day. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of... Uh, creative freedom to do what we wanted with the different themes. As long as we were putting out good food, they were happy. Uh, but we did have a big food waste problem. And after our time at the Mad Academy, I did come back and uh, try and address that with a bunch of different ways. Uh, the one that really stuck was a fermentation program where we took mostly produce, but also sometimes grains and proteins and would try and preserve them using fermentation to get high-value products instead of just tossing them in the trash. Because there was a big food waste problem there, obviously, having different menus every day. Um, not a lot of that prep transfers to the next day. So uh, without addressing it somehow, we'd end up throwing a lot away. How was that received? Because I, I mean, I also had the same experience of like le learning all that we learned during those times. Because I remember we had this very interesting project of uh, remodeling this whole uh, whole restaurant that we had. Was it called like Delinas or something? I, I remember it having a... Drillonese or something like that? Yeah, <laughs> that one. So like I remember like uh, trying to apply all of this at the place I was working at, at that moment. And how was it received? Because of course we had this one week of very encouraging, high-spirited education about this. But I, I think change always comes with uh, a lot of, uh, yeah, not very positive... Uh, response at the beginning. So how was that at the institution like Meta, which I'm assuming has a lot of structure, yeah. things going around? No, it. definitely. Uh, one of the talks that we had that I thought actually I benefited from the most was that, forget what her role was, but the lady from Christian Hansen, fermentation company, basically. And she came mm -hmm. through and explained how to navigate that corporate structure to us and gave us sort of like an outline on how to escalate things. And I found that to be very helpful. And I, uh, sort of used that and just worked my way up through the corporate ladder until I had everybody on board who I needed to have on board. Obviously, you know, it's a bunch of chefs. The fermentation program was very exciting. You know, people wanted to take part in that. Things like carbon accounting, food waste tracking, less exciting stuff was um, not as well received, but at least we started somewhere. Um, and I still try and push them on that when I do have a chance to talk to people from there still. Um, but yeah, it was just slowly working up the ladder until you could get everybody on board who you needed and then push it through. Because we had to do everything more so than a restaurant probably would above board. We had to really work with HACCP plans and the Seattle health authorities to make sure everything was very locked down. And that was a lot of the work. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. And then moving on from Meta, like, I, I mean, you told us a lot about the work you're doing right now with, with Meaty. I'm very curious, how, do you, how does someone end up with that job? Because you haven't formally studied for this or you haven't formally planned to enter this. I mean, how were you aware that they would look for such a profile? How was the process of applying for the job? How did it all happen, actually? Uh, it was just, you know, a longstanding interest in fermentation that I tried to apply throughout my career. And did a lot of deep personal study into to really understand well and I felt like I had a good grasp on it and 
I definitely wanted to, you know, when it came to pivoting in my career, that was definitely the direction I wanted to go in. Um, I never, I wasn't really looking for anything. I was having a lot of fun at Meta. Um, I had a lot of fun stuff to do. I really liked the people I worked with. But one day I just sort of Googled fermentation jobs randomly and this one popped up. And I thought it was a bit of a long shot, but I, I tried for it. It was like a six-week interview process. I talked to a, a bunch of people from the company. And it worked out, and I was really surprised, but happy to move to Colorado and be part of it. That's, that's quite a, it's quite a leap and quite a story itself of, of, uh, of Google helping you get, uh, I mean, not only getting a job, but a change, of, a massive change of career. Summing up all that you've said all throughout, I mean, you've had quite a career in, the, in these, I mean, you're still young, and in these few years you've had already, I would say, navigated through, although still working around food, but still three very different careers of starting off in a kitchen, your usual kitchen job. Not so usual, especially in your case, with not coming from a school and not, not going through that route, and then going on to institutional catering, and now what you do is completely uh, a different ballgame. How do you compare them? Especially, I mean, there would be a lot to say on comparing front, but how do you see them at least as uh, as as interest-based, like as your skill set-based, something that motivates you every day across all three jobs, and also like the work-life balance? How do you how do you compare on these two factors, all the three streams of career you've taken? Yeah, definitely, totally different for each one, right? Um, restaurants are super. Creatively fulfilling. I really enjoy working in restaurants. It's a lot of fun. I love the pace of it. But obviously work-life balance is most of the time pretty lacking. Meta was probably somewhere in between where we had a regular schedule. You know, never have to come in on your off hours or anything like that. It's just specific times, five days a week, you're there. And it was still quite creatively fulfilling. Again, probably more so than most institutional environments because we had a lot of freedom. We had a lot of uh, encouragement to do, you know, fun, crazy stuff. So that was a lot of fun, but also much more work-life balance, but still lacking that pace of a restaurant. I still felt like I was just kind of dragging my feet a lot of the time. And then now it's just a totally different world where work-life balance is very high. You know, I work three days a week, four days off. Um, but it's very slow pace. The idea that if we run into a problem, stopping everything and taking hours to try and resolve it is very yeah. foreign concept to me. <laughs> you know, I'm used to troubleshooting fast and in the moment, um, but this is like stop, analyze everything, and then start again. Very different pace, and again, more technical, less creative, but I think opens up the doors to hopefully something, the happy medium that we're all searching for in the future. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I mean, I think you're on it like in this, in this industry when it's just, I think it's just beginning, uh, seeing all the restaurants and all the chefs going this route. I think, uh, I think you're lucky to be in this, in this industry at, at, I think it's still very primitive. It's still, people are still trying out stuff and it's, it's really exciting to see what comes out of, uh, out of this whole, uh, plant-based movement especially with what you're doing is a class apart so yeah it's, it's it's very interesting i'm looking forward to see what comes out of this i think uh, if you could uh, i think this could be a good moment to conclude this because uh, i think we have covered a, a wide range of topics and uh, just to sum it up for somebody who's listening this podcast out of curiosity of 
because I think a lot of people listening to this are not not just doubting their career in restaurants, but also like looking for looking at people like you and and wondering how does this person end up doing this job and uh, how does somebody who could have been today in the kitchen with me is now not anymore and is doing something else super interesting. Not that one is better than the other, but I think it's just different and presents a different set of opportunities altogether. What is like a, a short message that you would like to leave for any aspiring cook or or a cook who just is looking for a change in his career at the moment? Yeah. Basically, cooks and chefs have a super wide-ranging um, set of skills, but also ability to, you know, hone in on specific skills. So, obviously, if you work in kitchens, especially in the higher uh, positions in a kitchen, you have fantastic opportunity to learn leadership, and that translates pretty much anywhere. So you can go lead a team. You know, there's not. It's definitely slower pace, but ultimately, I'm still leading a team here, so it's somewhat similar to what I was doing before. And then obviously you can also delve into the science side of things and from there go into health and safety, uh, something like what I'm doing. If you're really into fermentation or really into, you can do R&D as well. You know, uh, with the wide set of skills and wide set of knowledge that cooks and chefs are equipped with, you can really go in all sorts of directions. So just pick a direction you want to go in, focus on learning the skills that are necessary for that hone what you love and what you care about and then take that wherever you want to go with it. Oh, I think that's I, I think that's a wonderful message to, to sum this up with. And uh, yeah, Nick, thank you so much for your time. I think it's been a complete pleasure. And yeah, I'm looking forward to see what's next in your career. Of course, you too. So that's it from this week's episode of Boyaz Bras, a podcast where we bring to you the voice of the fugitive chefs. If you like listening to these interviews, do subscribe to us so that you do not miss out on any of these episodes. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube as Boyatras Podcast. We release new episodes every Tuesday, alternating between English and Spanish.